this is Sam Black with uh, the Blue-Red Zendikar Rising episode of Drafting Archetypes. Before I get started, I have a few quick points of business to address. Uh, to start with, I would like to thank my patrons uh, over at uh, patreon.com slash draftingarchetype. Uh, that's Jonathan, Jack, Ray, Arn, Matthew, Adrian, Arthur, Michael, Byron, and Stephen. Thank you very much for your support. Also, I didn't want to uh, bring this up earlier, but now that people have had a chance to watch a few uh, episodes of this and get a feel for what I'm doing, uh, if anyone is so inclined, um, this uh, podcast is still at the stage where reviews on whatever podcast app you prefer to listen to us on would uh, mean a lot in terms of helping our growth. Uh, also, sub subscribing to our YouTube channel or, you know, just doing anything you can to boost uh, this show on whatever platforms you're using would presumably really help with uh, getting the word out to more people. I'm obviously looking to let as many people as possible know that I'm doing this, especially leading up to Kaldheim, when we can get into some exciting new material for a new format. Yeah, that's that's the, that business out of the way. So uh, now we can move into the strategy stuff. So this week we're going to talk about blue-red. Yeah, so uh, previously I have referred to kind of the color combination and kind of central mechanic that the color combination is going for. I have not done that this week because I don't believe that there is like a single correct way to draft blue-red. I think that blue-red has a few different options, and the primary reason for that is that I think that there's a lot of tension between the uh, strategic nature of the strongest blue cards compared to the strategic nature of the strongest red cards in this set. Specifically, I think the red cards lean uh, aggressive, especially the strongest ones, and uh, the strongest blue cards, in my opinion, lean controlling. And um, that's not to say that these colors can't work together, but you need to pay a lot of attention to really uh, thinking hard about what your deck is trying to do and uh, changing your picks depending on what that is. There are people who believe that all limited decks are just mid-range decks, I get it, but don't really subscribe to that theory myself. I do think that it's good to have a plan in mind and that uh, limited decks really do fill strategic archetypes, at least most of my successful one, most successful ones do. The same thing could be said about my constructed decks. I'm not really a mid-range player in general, so again, not trying to slight anyone who does prefer to draft uh, in kind of a mid-range philosophy, and I do think that blue-red can definitely support mid-range strategies in this as well. But I think that you, there, there are definitely some key cards that are much better suited to some strategies than others, and not all cards in blue and red play well with all other cards. Fortunately, there are a lot of like strong synergies and cards that do play particularly well together um, with very, you know various pairs of cards in these color combinations. So looking over the cards and thinking about the way that the drafts go, what I realized is that I think that for the most part, the strategy that you're going for is going to be dictated largely by your 
uncommons. Um, the, like the powerful uncommons that you take early in a draft that set you into these colors are really going to determine which commons and what kind of strategy you're looking for moving down the line. So, for example, the like just a, some of the most of the most powerful uncommons, like the cards that I'm going to take early and that are going to make me really want to draft the both color and strategy that they point toward in this in these colors are cards like Lol Mage's Domination, Roost of Drakes, Shatter Skull Minotaur, Thundering Spark Mage, Thundering Rebuke, Relic Amulet, Rockslide Sorcerer. Don't expect you to necessarily know what all those cards are by name. Um, I'm planning to go through this in more detail and we'll talk about each of them. But uh, a lot of those cards point toward a pretty strong overarching strategy. Uh, and there, there are other cards that are like that, like uh, Ruin Crab doesn't really make the list of cards that are like especially well suited to blue-red, but it is a blue card that you could take that could end up putting you in blue-red and does tell you something about how you want the games to go. To kind of hop right into where these cards are pointing and what those decks look like, I'm just going to kind of go down that list. So, uh, Little Mage's Domination, I believe I've mentioned before when I was talking about blue-white, this is maybe my favorite uncommon in the set. It's really, really strong. And this is the blue, blue, blue X. Steal a creature with converted mana cost X or less, unless your opponent has eight cards or more in their graveyard, and then uh, you kind of get a three mana discount on this. And when you first pick Little Mage's Domination, it really gives you an extremely strong endgame, not just because stealing a creature is such a strong effect, but because when you start the draft with it, you can look for Tazim Royal Mage, which is the common blue 2-1 with a kicker that can return an instant or sorcery from your graveyard to your hand. And that card isn't super highly prioritized by other people, and you can prioritize it very highly and prioritize other spells for it to get. And once you have this kind of like core of field research, Lull Mage's Domination, Tazim Royal Mage, and any kind of interaction, you just automatically have a really strong late game because your field research and similar cards help you find your domination, help you hit your mana for your Royal Mage, and then you get to a spot where you're like, dominate your thing, Royal Mage back my domination, domination your other thing, into the Royal my Royal Mage, Royal Mage my domination, domination your other thing, and... You've, you've usually won by that point, but I, I have had games where I literally do all of those things. And so when you are in this, like, when you first pick a uh, Lone Mage's Domination, you're really open-ended about what color you're pairing your blue with. And since it's triple blue and really strong, I'm basically just going to spend my next picks trying to take the strongest blue card that's available, or if there isn't a good blue card, then just the strongest card in whatever color happens to be there. And then uh, stay flexible about what my second color is for a while while prioritizing blue cards, and then settle into what a, whatever second color, since my second color is gonna be kind of a splash anyway, just whatever color I happen to see a few good support cards for. So in this case, uh, if you end up in blue-red in that strategy, you're basically just going to be a, like 
blue control deck that's like splashing red for some removal. Uh, maybe synchronized spellcraft, hopefully into the royal. Uh, maybe the like uncommon kicker thing that does one damage to everything, and if you kick it, two damage. Uh, I don't remember the name offhand, and it's not important to look up. But um, and then you can you know play a few creatures, uh, whatever you know you happen to want. Uh, you could play something like Pyroclastic Hellion or even Teeter Peak Ambusher, a card that I think is really really weak in most red archetypes. Is actually I think kind of at its best in blue red control specifically, where you're looking for an early blocker and you're planning to play a long game and you might be short on cards that are actually going to like close out the game and kill your opponent and so having this card that blocks well early teeter peak ambusher is uh the one in a red one three that you can uh, pump its power by two for two in a red um that it, it's a warrior it's generally not aggressive enough for most of the warrior archetypes but it does uh play well when you're just looking for like some kind of you know good early good late uh card that can close a game in uh, a control deck so also pretty friendly for party type payoffs there are a few of them not a ton of them in this color combination that's that's kind of what you're trying to do with all mages domination and then uh roost of drakes is going to put you in a really similar direction to all mages domination obviously like both of these cards are cards that give you a really strong uh, late game as long as you can just hang out and then like start doing your thing they both play well with other kicker cards with rooster drakes you're going to want to prioritize your kicker cards a little more highly which means that you're going to start looking for risen riptides and then uh trying to justify playing um potentially the uh, plus o plus three kicker get hexproof trick stuff like that that you might not want to play if you aren't like if you don't have rooster drakes and you're just a little mage's domination control deck so uh, really, really similar macro strategies, but there are a few picks and a few cards that you're going to look for differently, depending on which of these like powerful payoffs you're building your deck around. And that's, that's not surprising. The cards work well with slightly different other cards. So while they're both control cards, you're, you know, uh, it makes sense that your picks are dictated by exactly what your strongest cards are and the cards that you're building around. The next card, these are like very loosely ranked by how much I like starting with each of them. So the next card that I'm going to talk about is Shatter Skull Minotaur. This puts you in a very different direction. This is the 4 red red 5-4 haste minotaur with uh, warrior with party, uh, costs one less for each uh, creature in your party. And this is like one of the best red aggro warriors. And I'm very happy to kind of like settle into a red aggro deck if I have an early Shatter Skull Minotaur, super impressed with this card. Very good at, like, it, it usually costs four mana, often on turn four, and a 5-4 haste on turn four is just so much bigger than other things. Um, it's really, really easy to just pull super far ahead with this card. So this is going to put you down, this is, you're basically going to draft this the same way that I was talking about Little Mage's Domination, but for red aggro instead of blue control where I'm basically just like looking to pair Shatter Skull Minotaur with any good red aggressive cards. And I don't super care about like trying to get a diverse party for Shatter Skull Minotaur. I actually think Shatter Skull Minotaur 
is kind of best in the Warrior Matters decks because so some party payoffs you don't want to enable them with other things that are the same class as them so for example like thundering spark mage um, is the uh, two two for four wizard that uh, does damage equal to your party when it enters the battlefield because it's on the battlefield when it checks what it does you're guaranteed up guaranteed to have a wizard so other wizards don't help it but with shatter skull minotaur because it checks party in your hand before you cast it, other warriors do help it, and it doesn't matter what its class is. It, it can work with anything that's already on the battlefield. That means that it plays a little bit better with Expedition Champion, the 2-3 uh, warrior that gets plus 2 plus 2 plus 2 plus 0 if you have another warrior. Like if you curve not a warrior into Expedition Champion into Shatter Skull Minotaur, now you're you know golden. Shatter Skull Minotaur is pretty good in like Warrior Matters that also has some things in other tribes just to be able to cast it on turn four sometimes. And if it costs five, it's not the end of the world. And when I'm kind of this like red aggro deck with some blue cards, I mentioned that most of the blue cards aren't very aggressive. The question then is, well, what blue cards are you looking for here? Obviously, like if I'm saying this wants to go in a Warrior Matters cards deck, there are no blue warriors. So that's not going to, that's not what you're looking for here. So what you are looking for is you're looking for evasion and uh, tempo, like tricks and tempo sp things. So uh, the most extreme example of this that I've drafted uh, that was actually really successful was a mono-red warrior deck that was literally splashing two Zulaport duelists as the only two blue cards. And it had a lot of Grotag bug catchers. And so having a like cheap non-warrior to give my bug catchers extra power that could cause me to like win a combat because your opponent always obviously wants to trade off with your bug catchers which means that they're really good at setting up combats where taking away your opponent's power will save your creature and you'll get your you know two for one obviously if you don't care about party and you're or you're not really aggressive the one one rogue being on the battlefield isn't really a full card but when you have uh, cards that care about party and like you're in these kind of like racing scenarios and stuff the uh one one on the battlefield can actually matter so that's the most extreme case more realistically you're probably looking to uh potentially have enough wizards to play chilling trap and that's the uh one mana cantrip if you control a wizard that gives a creature minus four minus oh you can play tempo cards like into the royal and glacial grasp and then you can play evasive creatures like uh, Expedition Diviner and Umara Mystic and Seafloor Stalker. You can play tempo cards like Cunning uh, Geyser Mage. Uh, so th there are plenty of blue cards that fit this kind of... Um, a red aggro strategy that's very similar to red-black party. It has a lot of the same principles that I was talking about. Like Grotag Bugcatcher is the main thing that's going on. Really good with any kind of uh, trick which is why you're so interested in Chilling Trap and Zulaport Duelist, but obviously you can still use Inordinate Rage. This deck is really going to hinge, uh, as always, on how many bug catchers you can get, and then you're either going to want... Basically, Blue-Red has some party payoffs, but outside of bug catcher, and debatably Ardent Electromancer, depending on how you feel about Ardent Electromancer, those are the only two that I feel like are really big. Obviously, it's nice to get a bunch of damage out of Synchronized Spellcraft, but for the most part, like the other party cards, 
it's nice to have party stuff, but that's not like the core of what the cards are doing. And so uh, the, the nature of blue-red is such that you're most likely to be looking for wizards, and then you may be specifically looking for warriors. It's even possible that you'll be specifically looking for rogues, and don't even bother with clerics. Your only option is the 1-3 uh, that locks the thing down. You're probably looking to avoid playing and stonework pack beast. And there, there's no reason to try to get a full party, so just that just focus on focus on uh, getting the payoffs primarily for the cards that are looking for other things with the same type as them. So that means that when you are in this kind of like aggressive spot where you're now looking to prioritize creatures over spells, you're largely looking to choose the class of creatures that you're looking for synergies between. Um, so that could be looking for a bunch of wizards for Umara Mystics, or it could be just hoping to get like a lot of bug catchers and expedition champions and the, sh the shatter skull minotaur that you already have in this hypothetical and stuff and trying to make your expedition champions good um and then you can maybe pick up going without vanguard or any of the other warrior matters cards that's kind of like how to think about the red aggro deck that's uh best enabled by shatter skull minotaur uh next up is thundering spark mage this is pretty flexible but uh it's better in the aggressive decks because the aggressive decks are the ones that are much more likely to both have a higher density of creatures in them and have a higher density of creatures that party. The controlling decks are pretty interested in cards like Skyclave Squid, which is the 3-2 landfall, can attack, otherwise has defender, and Skyclave Sentinel, which is the 2-3 flying defender, unless you kick it, unless it has a plus one, plus one counter on it, and then it's a 4-5, and then it has counters on it, and then it can attack, um, and Risen Riptide, and various strong creatures that don't party and obviously thundering spark mage prefers to be with creatures that do party i think the thundering spark mage is a card that when you take it you're going to be thinking that you're probably leaning toward more of uh an aggressive type blue red deck that won't necessarily be heavy red you can have more of the like evasion type aggressive elements from uh, the Blue Eye Party deck. You know, you can prioritize your Expedition, Expedition Diviners and Seafloor Stalkers, um, especially since uh, Seafloor Stalker plays pretty well with Thundering Spark Mage because uh, it gives you a rogue in a spot where you're likely to have a lot of wizards and gives you multiple cards that are looking for parties that you have, you know, you can find some warriors and some stonework pack beasts or whatever. Most of the time you're gonna play Thundering Spark Mage regardless, but if you take it early, just remember that the fact that you want more creatures is going to make you less likely to be a Spells Matter deck, plus you don't have one of these like really powerful payoffs to try to play a late game for, so you're going to think of it more as like an aggro party tempo play kind of thing. Next up is Thundering Rebuke. This is a high pick, but really doesn't offer a lot of direction about what you're looking to do. It's just going to be good in any blue-red deck. Uh, you take it, you're in red, and then you see what happens next and try to find another strong card that gives you uh, direction, or you just take good cards for a while. Um, maybe you end up in a mid-range deck because you don't have a card that's pulling you in a certain direction. That could also happen. But really, I mean, this is just a generically good card, so whatever. Next up is Relic Amulet. And... Uh, this is obviously going to make you significantly prioritize wizards over other creature types. 
and knowing that you're going to be looking for wizards, you're looking to do stuff that makes the wizards good, which means that you're... Um, well, so you know that you're not looking for stuff like Skyclave Squid as a high priority, because you, when it's close, you'd rather have a wizard. You know you're not uh, necessarily trying to do stuff that's looking for a diverse party, so you're not really interested in, like, Seaflar Stalker. Uh, you're really looking to specialize on wizard stuff, so you're looking for, like, Expedition Diviner, and obviously you want to get a lot out of your Tazim Royal Mages, uh, especially since you have this Relic Amulet that's paying you for playing spells. Um, Relic Amulet is the card that most uh, increases my interest in playing with Deliberate. I think that, for the most part, I try to avoid playing Deliber Deliberate if I don't have a Relic Amulet, and I try to play Deliberate if I do have Relic Amulet. Uh, I think that, like, once you have Relic Am... Oh, also, you know, leaning heavily toward Wizards will allow you to play Chilling Trap, which is roughly as good as it gets with Relic Amulet. Chilling Trap and Glacial Grasp are both amazing with Relic Amulet, because they handle, like, they buy some time for you to charge up your amulet against big stuff. With Relic Amulet, you're in a spot that's similar to Rooster Drake's or Little Mage's Domination, where you really just need the game to last long enough for this, like, super powerful engine uncommon that you have to take over. So you're really looking to uh, prioritize like removal and defensive cards and uh, have really high spell, spell density with Relic Amulet while leaning, of course, toward wizards. Uh, which brings me to the next, the last card that I want to talk about, which is Rockslide Sorcerer, which looks like it wants the exact same cards as Relic Amulet. Like they literally trigger off all identical cards. But I actually think that Relic Amulet and Rockslide Sorcerer as first picks send you down substantially different directions, where Relic Amulet's giving you this like slow, grindy, uh, inevitability type card, and Rockslide Sorcerer is giving you kind of a lot of upfront value. Uh, like you have a three, three for three. It's nothing special, but it's you're not falling behind when you play it. And so where Relic Amulet, Amulet you basically take a turn off and then you have to charge up. You, you don't fall behind at all when you play Rockslide Sorcerer, and you take advantage of it best when you just, like, you know, use it to get a couple of triggers and pick off some blockers or whatever, and you can uh, kind of stay more aggressive, and uh, Rockslide Sorcerer points to a more aggressive wizard deck by an appreciable margin than uh, Relic Amulet. The card that's most similar to Rockslide Sorcerer in terms of how it influences your draft is Umara Mystic, which is another thing that says I want a lot of wizards and I want a lot of spells and I want to beat down. I'm not I'm not looking to try to like block with my one three flyer and then maybe trigger something to make it a three three. I'm looking to attack for three, attack for five in the air kind of stuff. Rockslide Sorcerer is not quite as aggressive as Umara Mystic, but really points in that similar direction. Those are the uh, kind of like big uncommons that send you in a particular direction, and then those are the directions that follow from those big uncommons. And so that that's kind of like what you're trying to figure out and how you're navigating and where you're ending up in blue-red. So uh, from talking about those, I've really covered a lot of what I think is important to discuss in this archetype. There are obviously uncommons, or I mean, sorry, uh, commons that you'll take early um, in, you know, spots when there aren't uh, premium, premium uncommons, but uh, those commons don't dictate what you're doing with your draft as much, both because they're just like a removal spell or something that uh, functions more like Thundering Rebuke, where it provides less direction, and also 
they're not as strong, so it doesn't make as much sense to warp your deck around them. The primary uh, common that's really going to give you direction is Grotag Bugcatcher, because it's, you know, like a top tier card if you're an aggressive red deck, and very unimpressive if you're kind of these like blue long game inevitability type decks. So if you're getting bug catchers, you're obviously looking to maximize them and looking for ways to, you know, obviously do the stuff I've talked about, get tricks going and stuff. And um, maybe that's the, I mean, as always, that's the card that makes you want to think about Ardent Electromancer. Yeah, that's that's really the heart of my analysis uh, with this archetype is just figure out what you're doing um, based on just like accepting the direction from the like early strong uncommons that you're seeing uh, and then you know kind of staying flexible and figuring it out if you're not seeing any of those and just like take good cards that will allow you to like if you see one of the strong like this is the strategy I should be in type cards uh, in pack two you're prepared to kind of like move in on fully supporting it it's okay if you you know make a pick where you end up taking a card that's worse in the deck that you end up with uh, than another card that was in the pack, and then you pivot into that. Like Obviously, that kind of stuff happens when you're drafting. And if you don't have a card that's one of these really strong cards that gives you a direction, I think there's a lot to be said for staying flexible to maximize any of them and just kind of taking generically good cards over just choosing a path arbitrarily and committing to it. Uh, so like, And that's what I'm saying about the commons like I, I think it's a mistake to choose your archetype based on really leaning into like a couple of commons that you get in pack one that might be a little more aggressive or a little more controlling or whatever another kind of like big deal about this archetype is because your payoffs for uh tribal stuff are so small you, you can both you know focus on single type or whatever but again outside of like the wizard thing in blue red there's not a ton of that going on in blue red and that means that this is a good archetype uh, to play your like the random landfall creatures and riptides and random like off type cards that other people maybe don't want as much uh, or that just like exist at a good rate because they don't do party things. The like three four that does a damage when uh, land enters the battlefield Legac, potentially Living Tempest, but I'm not really excited about the rate on that one. But it is fine and kind of the more like blue controlling decks. Pyroclastic Hellion I mentioned before, Skyclave Squid, uh, Skyclave Sentinel. All these cards fit pretty well in blue-red. Uh, I even think that uh, there is... I, I haven't drafted it, but I do believe that you could have like an aggressive Spells Matter deck that really leans into the uh, red step links, the 1-1 one, one, um, Hound that gets plus 2, plus 2 with Landfall, and then uh, the cantrip that kills land and searches for a land where that's kind of like powering up your o1s and uh triggering your spells matter stuff and so you can kind of like splice some of the like landfall stuff onto some of the spells matter stuff kind of bridging with uh that two mana cantrip that i don't play enough to know the name of offhand Obviously, you're you're always going to want to look for like little synergies like that to let you bridge, where like that lets you bridge between landfall and spells matters, and that's definitely like a direction that blue red can go. Yeah, so a uh, little bit a little bit of a different discussion here, and not a ton of cards that I wanted to call out specifically, uh, 
the values of all the cards do really change and I think that for the most part it's like pretty clear which ones are uh, the aggressive ones and which ones are the control ones basically like if you're aggressive you're looking for uh, you know all the like good uh, like party creatures and good rates on bodies and if you're controlling you're looking for creatures that like block reasonably and uh, removal and card draw field research especially so uh, that'll wrap up the lecture section uh, and we're gonna move straight into the uh, Q&A so um, for those of you uh, listening to this thank you for listening and uh, hop on into the bonus episode and for those of you live, let's get some questions queued up.